Language podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. guys we're back hi matt how you doing i'm doing well and i'm excited to to get into this episode we just too. we just recorded a great episode of the curbsiders this is dr matthew Watto here with Stuart, who you're hearing interrupt me i think you may have actually contradicted yourself you said we're going to get into it and then you said we already recorded it i'm so confused now <laughs> Well, yeah, we we do things out of order, Stuart. You know that. We That's this right. is the, this is the last thing we're recording, and uh, I am it's past my bedtime by about an hour, so I'm kind of delirious. And uh, let, let's just let Paul tell the audience what we do on this show. Oh my God, yeah, this is <laughs> this is the Internal Medicine Podcast, and you may want to skip ahead 17 minutes rather than the usual 15 <laughs> this time around. This was just nonsense. We use a. Uh, expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We also uh, talk to our guests up front to learn about what makes them tick. It's a little bit abbreviated this time around since you're already familiar with them from prior Peabody Award winning episodes. Um, so Matt, what what did we talk about this time around? Uh, thanks for asking, Paul. Well, on this episode, we this is this is kind of one of our healthcare policy for millennials episodes. I, we're still kind of working on the title there, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, this this episode uh, we have two up and comers in the ACP, Deep Shah and Fatima Sayed, and we talk to them about kind of work, physician workforce issues, um, access to care, how how some of the new care delivery models like re- retail clinics and telehealth are, are affecting patients and the physician-patient relationship. We kind of talk about potential ways to make some of these things better and uh, future directions in all these areas. I learned a lot because I know very little about this topic, and I think that these episodes are just really valuable to me because it's, as we were talking about in post, uh, Paul and I were admitting that we're always very embarrassed when when people ask us about uh, like health policy related stuff and um, we don't know much about it. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to build up my knowledge in this area. Whereas I just keep repeating, it's complicated and then kind of look <laughs> off in the middle distance and people usually seem to accept that. So. I love that. And before I get on to introducing our guests, I did want to remind you that this episode is co-sponsored with the American College of Physicians and that ACP members can get free CME and mock credit for this episode by going to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders to claim your CME and mock credit. Our guests for this episode are are really kind of like our co-hosts or guest hosts for this episode. Dr. Fatima Syed has a master's in comparative social policy from the University of Oxford. She is an end, a recently graduated endocrinology fellow now working in a job as a primary care physician. She is a former chair of the Council for Resident and Fellow Members of the American College of Physicians. She has a special interest in health policy and health advocacy and has done a lot already even early in her career. Our other guest, Dr. Deep Shah, 
also has a master's in comparative social policy from Oxford. He graduated from Harvard Medical School, did an internal medicine residency at Emory, and is now working as a primary care physician and managing a medium-sized, independent, multi-specialty clinic in the Atlanta metro area. He has a special interest in population health and health policy. Once again, he is also has been very involved with the American College of Physicians doing policy work. We're so lucky to have both Fatima and Deep come on and answer our questions and teach us about this stuff, and I hope to do a lot more of these episodes. So without further ado, enjoy this wonderful conversation. Everybody, I'm so excited to do this show tonight. It's been a while since we've done one of these. We have two great returning guests, and or I, I think we should just call you guys guest hosts at this point. Fatima and Deep, they're kind of our, um, they're going to walk us through some of these health policy topics, but That's in right. case you haven't heard them on previous episodes, let's let them introduce themselves. So Fatima, can you remind the audience, give them like a one-liner, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Hey, everyone. I am Fatima Sayed. I am a 31-year-old newly minted primary care physician in North Carolina. That is exciting. It's it's good to finally get out there and like, you know, you know, the workforce, no one above you. It's also very scary. No one it's a little you. scary, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. And there's plenty of people above me, which is nice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right. And Deep? Thanks for having me back. Uh, my name is Deep Shaw. I am a practicing internist with the grand two month, two years and couple months experience under my belt practicing in Metro Atlanta. And I also help run a group of clinics. Um, we have about 19 sites across Northeast Atlanta. As of last time, I imagine you are still incredibly busy uh, between trying to, did you scale back your hours and, and do yourself a favor? Are you still like running it and, and uh, working a full-time, full patient load? You'll soon discover, Matt, I'm all talk, no action. I'm still <laughs> maintaining the exact same schedule, but it's been a lot of fun. So no complaints. Except you're rubbing your head there like you have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> Since... Since so, since the audience is kind of we we've made you both answer the questions in the past. People can go back to the previous episodes. We'll link both your previous episodes, uh, Fatima and Deep. Your previous episode in the notes. They can go back and listen to the initial questions. So let's just do some picks of the week. And I always like to start with Paul Williams. I don't know why, but Paul, you want to start the picks of the week here? Yeah, I don't know why either. Um, <laughs> since I always give picks that almost no one's going to actually pay attention to. <laughs> Um, but and I feel like someone must have recommended this. But just in case, I'm going to recommend uh, the 2018 documentary "Won't You Be My Neighbor," um, the biopic. I think you recommended that actually. Me, I would not have. I think because I, I, I want to say Uncle week. Bob. Bob Centaur did. Was it? Yeah, maybe it was Uncle Bob. So maybe I'll just remember. I'll second his recommendation. So you watched it? I did. It, it's and it is in this era of post-irony, like to have a completely non-ironic movie about a gentle, kind soul who just does nice things, and that's the whole point of the movie, is kind of refreshing. So it's, it's if you just need a chance to have a, a healthy cry, and then also, yeah, that's right, he did recommend it, because I said I didn't want to cry, and then sure enough, I cried. So thanks, Bob. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's a lovely movie about a lovely man. I feel like there's a more interesting story about his kid, who was like, I had to grow up with the second coming of Christ, which I think is sort of an interesting thing to throw out there, and that would be I want to hear more from him about what it was like to be the son of Fred Rogers. But regardless, it's a it's a touching, sweet, um, sincere movie. So when you're in the mood for something like that, which I rarely am, uh, it's certainly worth a watch. So 2018, Won't You Be My Neighbor? 
And crazy enough, it's uh, safe for my kids to watch. I can't believe it, Paul. <laughs> I'm getting soft in my old age. Fatima, you want to go next? Yeah, so as a newly minted primary care physician, I'm reading annals cover to cover these days. <laughs> um, but there's a really interesting article on the latest um, an ideas and opinions piece about, um, it's a, from the 12th of February, ominous reversal of health gains in the U.S., time to rethink research priorities. And these are topics that Deep and I learned a lot about when we were in grad school together. So that's uh, what I've been reading lately. Well, I'm going to do uh, a little twist here and recommend ESPN 30 for 30, Deion Sanders. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, just, we just hosted this Super Bowl here in Atlanta. And so it was it was well t- – uh, sorry, we didn't host the Super Bowl here in Atlanta. Um, but we did. Excuse me. We didn't plan it though. And uh, there was a lot of hustle and bustle. And Deion Sanders is all you need to know about Atlanta sports from the era that he played uh, in the 90s. And it's just a great film. And you can complement it with evening reading of David Brooks's a Road to Ca- The Road to Character. And in The Road to Character, he contrasts Adam 1 and Adam 2, which are your best self versus your external self and how those two come into conflict. And I don't think there's any better example of that than Deion Sanders uh, in 30 for 30. So enjoy. I have something really bad. So yeah. So if, if you want to feel like an absolute, absolutely wretched doctor, in fact, an absolutely wretched uh, surgeon, my, my kids had me trying, trying this game. It's, it's, it's just really, really bad. It's called surgeon simulator. I know it's kind of old, but uh, I tried it with a VR headset, and I, I just felt like I was drunk the entire time, and trying to do a heart transplant with a hammer is impossible. Anyways, it's that Surgeon Simulator. Okay. I, I'm going re- to recommend... Uh, this is after some recent uh, poor scheduling on my part and uh, overextending myself. I am, am kind of constantly going back to this one book called Essentialism by Greg McCone. It's a... It's, he's... He's like a business coach, and he wrote. He also co-wrote the book Multipliers, which I've recommended before. And Essentialism is basically just a book about sort of like protecting your own time. And uh, so I, I've been thinking about that lately, you know, so that I can be better at the things that where I think better at the things that are important to me, where I think I can add the most value. And then just another thing, just a piece of advice that I am giving myself again. Uh, I was I was having a particularly down week a couple weeks ago and jump rope. It was jump rope. <laughs> jump right? rope. Yeah, jump rope. Do your TRX. Uh, no, but I it's basically just to make sure you have like things on your calendar that you're really looking forward to. I hope it can just pull you through anything. So, uh, hopefully on a weekly basis or, or a daily basis, weekly basis, monthly basis, you have things that you're looking forward to, big or small events. Um, mm. that's that's been helping me out a lot. So, yeah. Did you also recommend like journaling before? Wasn't that I have recommended journaling. You can make fun of me for that. Uh, no, no, I'm actually not making fun of you because I started somewhat doing that and brain dumping, and it's by far the most helpful thing I've ever done when I have so many things that are pulling me away. Because I, I had had a, I think you know that I have a hard time sleeping at night only because I have so many things going on. So if I just brain dump and say, you know, I don't have to worry about these things, it actually really, really helps. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm I'm glad you're I'm glad yeah, you're you trying it me. out. It's 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 good. Yep. Well, let's uh Fatima, why don't you kind of 
bring us into the the topics tonight. So we're going to try. Everyone knows that listens to the show that we are terrible at time management. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, we're already like, So we, we often run long, but I think I think we're going to try. We have a bunch of topics. We're going to try to spend roughly 10 minutes or so per topic. So mm-hmm. I'll... I'm going to kind of sit back as a timekeeper and we'll we'll see what we, we'll see what happens here. But why don't you bring us into the first part of this? Sure, absolutely. So, overall, uh, what we really want to focus on is talk about workforce issues and figuring out what that means exactly. So, we want our listeners to take away like knowing the what it means uh, primary care workforce and what that means and all the factors that go into it. So um, before we get into sort of specific topics, um, Deep, maybe you can help our audience, which ranges from medical students to practicing internists to the layman as well, um, about some of the definitions of what what does it mean, physician supply, demand, workforce, market, what exactly are we talking about here? Yeah, sure. I think all of us hear so much about the baby boomers and an aging population and and how that's going to strain the entire medical system, and perhaps most acutely, the physicians um, who lead our healthcare system. But there's a little bit more to the story. And so we'll start with a little bit of an overview about what are the main factors driving the demand for medical care, uh, and then how do we grow the supply of physicians, and what really comes into calculating the two sides of the equation. There's two nice uh, articles that we'll use to inform this section. Uh, One was a paper published by the AAMC, or I should say contracted by the AAMC, and it's an update that was published last year uh, to its original compendium on physician workforce issues. So if you go to the AAMC website and you go to workforce, it's the first thing that comes up, and it's the 2018 update. So we're going to get some of our stats from there. And then the other is a 2016 update from HRSA. So some of our audience may not know what HRSA is, but HRSA is a government research agency. And it puts out some really useful statistics and guides um, for those of us interested in health policy. It stands for the Health Resources and Service Administration. And they published a primary care physician workforce uh, analysis in 2016. And so I'm going to draw on both of those. So maybe we can start with talking about what drives demand. So what's going to determine how many doctors we need? So like I said, we all know about the aging population, but there's a little bit more to that story. Demographics aren't just the baby boomers going into retirement and enrolling in Medicare. Uh, There's other things that come into play. I think one of the most interesting ones that I don't hear too much about is the fact that we're doing a better job on the whole with prevention and population health means that we're not only going to have more patients, but they're going to be living longer. That's what we anticipate. So longevity of that population is going to affect the amount of care that we need to deliver that group of patients. The other things that come into play too, um, and one of those which will stay away from the politics of it is immigration. Um, but all those things come in uh, to play when you're thinking about the demand of medical care in terms of raw numbers. So just kind of summing up, patients are getting older, they're living longer, they have complex medical needs, and someone's got to take care of them. 
and more of them have insurance now than perhaps a decade ago. And that's because of things like the Affordable Care Act. More of them and, have these things too, these iPhones, right? And so also the, the same advances that we're using to, to improve healthcare is also increasing the, the reliance on healthcare for anything and everything. So an over-reliance on healthcare is also increasing that demand. It's a, it's a pseudo-demand that's not actually driven by disease, it's driven by desire. And by yeah. market forces outside One of our control. One of the most vexing questions in health economics yeah. um, is supply seems to drive demand. Um, exactly. The relationship does not follow the typical laws right. of economics or money. In all the clinic sites that I, that I manage, what we found is that by reducing the, the supply of appointments in a fixed cost healthcare system, we actually reduce that demand and without an actual impact on the, the, the health of our patient population. Um, now, there's, there's a sweet spot, so you can't just say, I'm going to offer zero appointments and have zero demand. But there's certainly a sweet spot where um, the, uh, the, the supply meets the actual true demand that's driven by disease. Um, otherwise, you have this artificial demand that's driven by the supply side. So this is not your typical um, uh, Adamsonian economics model where the supply should drive demand and demand drive supply in this in this uh, balancing cycle. It's actually a reinforcing loop, supply and demand in healthcare economics. Yeah, there's a Sentinel paper published by Kenneth Arrow, for anyone who's interested, that sort of outlines all of these issues that uh, help explain why health economics is so complicated related to these supply and demand issues. But... Maybe we can talk a little bit about the supply, which I think is maybe a more interesting issue for, for most of us. Um, we're current doctors, are going to be doctors. So the supply of physicians is most obviously the people who are practicing medicine. And we're going to drill down a little bit on primary care later in the talk, but I'm going to keep it broad right now. And the number of doctors that we have is the number of doctors that we have. And there are ways to augment the supply to keep up with the demand that we know is coming. So one of those ways is to increase the number of doctors that we train. That's graduate medical education. Uh, another option is our immigration policy. Do we want to bring more doctors in from other countries? That's something we've done in the past. Um, but all of those have a bottleneck in the training system, and we can only ramp up supplies so quickly. But I think the more interesting question is how much do we want to work as physicians now compared to perhaps 20 years ago? And if you look at all of these statistical analyses and the projections, they say that, you know, four or five years ago, we, the statisticians, thought that only millennials wanted to work shorter hours in the work week. But now that's across all age groups. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that related to wellness, burnout, just societal trends in general. I mean, we're seeing less patients per full-time equivalent than doctors of years past. And we're less productive in the sense that we bill less and we see less patients even during those hours. So there's another shrinkage in the supply there. And probably another important factor is with the age of retirement. How old doctors are when they retire is not just what it used to be, age 65 is when people aim for retirement. Depends a lot on how the economy is doing, and that's an open question. Uh, 
Uh, all these models assume that the retirement age will stay about the same as it has been, but uh, we don't know how it's going to be. So what else is on that supply side? Uh, are we delivering care from new sources other than physicians? Well, yeah, we all see that in the past 15 years, there has been tremendous growth in the physician extenders uh, across the country. And physician Did extenders... You, yeah, define what exactly physician extenders are for folks. Sure. So there's a lot of politically fraught terms of how we describe our colleagues in medicine. And for the rest of the conversation, I'll refer to them as either physician assistants or nurse practitioners. Nurse practitioners are also known as APRNs, Advanced Practice Registered Nurses. And they're a huge part of the healthcare environment now. Um, when I started medical school, which was in 2009, uh, the supply of APs, APRNs and, and PAs was significantly less than it is now. And we're going to go, go over some of those statistics in just a second. But uh, they're rapidly increasing the supply of providers, if you will. But we're just not quite sure how to incorporate them yet fully into care models. So the, you were talking about um, the lack of productivity or the not as productiveness of physicians over time. That's a factor and ways to, in terms of GME and now how supply is being addressed. So can you talk a little bit more about the supply side being addressed in the market that exists today? Can, can I just ask a very, very basic question? Um, why are physicians, and I, I think we have our own answer for this, but why are physicians less productive? Because I'm sure people are going to hear that and say, well, geez, just be more productive. So why are they less productive today, Deep? Well, I think that's an open question, and it depends on who you ask. Productivity is measured in different ways, and so we have to start there. Uh, wh what does it mean to be a productive physician? And often that has to do with how much you bill per hour that you work, which is not how all of us would define being an effective physician. Uh, but a lot of it has to do with the types of employment models that we see doctors working in now compared to 20, 30 years ago. There's a trend towards decreased productivity as physicians uh, become employees of larger systems rather than self-employed physicians or mm -hmm. partners in larger groups. And that seems to be the most likely explanation uh, for why physicians are less productive now. But and, and sorry, Deep, to interrupt, what do you, when you say productive, just so we know what that means for our audience, are you talking about the number of patients that people see billing? What exactly are you referring to? It's probably a combination of the two, somewhere in the middle there, of how many patients you see in a day and how much do you do for each patient. Stuart, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, As someone in a, like you said, a global budget environment. Right. So uh, some of the pressures about productivity are, um, unfortunately, I think when you don't have control over the revenue stream, you have, you have less of a stimulus to be more productive. So just that natural factor of being absorbed by a larger system. And, and I've seen this with some of the, the private practice uh, physicians that I've worked with who have been absorbed by a larger model. Essentially, they say, I am now on salary. Why should I 
you know, why am I going to break my back and stay several hours? I'm, I'm going to do what's required of me in order to collect that salary instead of saying, hey, I, I, I'm going to bill what I'm actually doing. And so some of that, I think, is driven by the larger healthcare system. And I think some of it could also be down to just the expectations about um, what the what the public expects of our physicians. So the increased transparency in medicine has also led to some external forces that uh, that force us to to limit the the um, the number of hours worked. So in the past, it wouldn't be unusual for a physi- for a surgeon to say be on his feet for 16, 18 hours in order to finish a case. Um, that would be very unlikely for a staff surgeon these days, or or for uh, one of us to to do you know, pull 24 hour call every other day for maybe a week on end. Um, that'd be unlikely. Even the residents who, when we trained, I'm not sure when you, when you trained deep, but when we trained, we still had 30 hour calls. And so that increased, uh, uh, what I, some form of stress inoculation also allows you to at least learn to, to, to feel what it, what it feels like to, or, to, to know what it feels like to work in a high stress environment. And so less stress inoculation for residents also is going to affect the productivity af- afterwards. So there's a, multiple competing reasons why I think productivity is being driven down. And I think it boils down to expectations, transparency, and um, larger socialized healthcare systems. I, I do want to just break. I, I have to point out, I mean, I watch the residents every day. They are pl- they get plenty of stress. I mean, they're, oh, I'm sure, their work day I'm is sure super intense. Their work day is I'm super sure they intense. do. So. I'm sure they do. But, um, you know, the number of patients that are being seen by the interns, at least on the services that, that I work with, it's it's a lower number than the, than the number of, of, of patients that I had when I was on service as an intern. Now, granted, they have a lot of external forces on them, so yeah. multidisciplinary but we're talking, requirements. We're talking outpatient medicine here, though, too. You know, that's what we want to keep. We want to keep this focus on outpatient. So I don't want to get us too off track with this, but but right. I think even so, and maybe this is. I mean, you could argue this would be accounted for in the actual billing, but I wonder if, to some degree, the fact that the patients we're taking care of are sicker and more complicated because we're doing a sort of kind of better job with chronic care conditions. Like, I wonder if part of that is just it's. Um, there's still work compression in the outpatient setting. Mm. You know, I said the same way that I think we said the inpatient side, and we could argue that the residents work as hard, if not harder, because they're doing more yeah. work. I wonder if that doesn't translate to the outpatient side, whereas we take care of sicker patients because we're doing a marginally better job. It's just harder yeah. to get more done. I, you know, I, I, I don't see that as much with the illness burden index, the IBI scores. They've been relatively flatlined in the clinics that, for at least for the past six to ten years, in the clinics that I've worked with. Um, so I, I don't know if it translates well. But certainly, um, anecdotally, I, I, you know, we, we do have sicker patients on hospice, less medication. So some of that doesn't translate very well to IBI when you start to de-escalate therapy. Um, because they look at things like utilization rate, number of, of, of diagnoses, number of medications. There's a lot of things that go into IBI scores. So it, it's, it's very possible that we're dealing more with the human side of medicine and less of what we consider to be the medical side of medicine. So it doesn't translate well to IBIs. But I, I, I do think that that could have part of it. Well, I think there's one other factor that we, we haven't raised today, but we spent quite a bit of time on the last time uh, I joined the show, which is the documentation administrative burden, oh, gosh. which is an external driver that has yeah. monumentally decreased productivity. So rather than doing exactly what probably most of the insurance companies want us to do, which is point fingers at each other as being more or less productive, um, we should probably look externally, 
for these factors that have made it even more difficult for us to see patients in a timely way. But yeah. I think, you know, Parkinson's law is what Stuart's getting at, uh, which is, you know, work expands to fill the time available uh, to get it done. But it's a really interesting issue. And in, in our practice, you know, I'm a junior physician and, and I just can't see it as many as my uh, senior colleagues. And whether it's because I don't have the stress tolerance or the capacity or, or what it is, I'm not sure, but I always come back to the documentation issue because mm-hmm. I, I think it's soul crushing. Um, <laughs> do, do you think that those senior physicians are documenting less than you? They're probably more confident documenting less uh, when they when they need to do that. Mm. I think that we kind of have covered the various theories for productivity differences that exist between timings of now and, and in the past. But why don't we move on a little bit and talk about what all of this means for patients? Deep, do you want to go into that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, we don't know what patients want and what they'll accept as the next 20 years unfolds. Uh, you know, we know that there's going to be a deficit and there's going to be a mismatch. We just don't know how much. You know, one of the interesting statistics from the AAMC update is, you know, the range of what they give as a predicted uh, physician shortfall. So those projections go to 2030 and it's almost comical. The the range of the shortfall is almost eighty thousand. They say the shortfall is between forty two thousand six hundred and one hundred and twenty one thousand physicians. Wow, sure. plus minus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> right? a, that's a large standard and, deviation and, there. It, and I think it just speaks to the fact that we have no idea how much most doctors are going to work. And second, how are we going to incorporate these new modes of care delivery and these new providers that are joining our teams, Mm -hmm. which are NPs and PAs? And we don't have any statistical background on which to build upon for any of those. And when I say modes of care delivery, I mean beyond the traditional uh, clinic. We're talking about telemedicine, uh, retail clinics, um, newer managed care models. Most listeners probably don't know what managed care means, but uh, when I say that, I mean clinics where uh, patients are assigned to a specific clinic and that clinic takes responsibility for its care over the course of the year rather than one-off visits with the doctor. Why don't we talk a little bit more about, Deep, you touched on some, some, some topics that I think are interesting for what the market looks like now, what the climate of care delivery looks like now. Can you speak a little bit more about retail health clinics and different modalities of care delivery? Sure. I'd be so interested to hear from everyone else uh, who joined the conversation. In Metro Atlanta, where I practice, retail clinics really didn't exist uh, probably 10, 15 years ago. And now they're on every corner. Uh, You see an urgent care in a retail clinic uh, pretty much everywhere you drive if it's a well-populated part of town. And those are primarily staffed by physician assistants or nurse practitioners here. And I'm sure there's tremendous variation across the country. But the American College of Physicians, which both Fatima and I are are very involved with, uh, has looked into it from the perspective of patient safety more than anything. And also, you know, my interest is really... What is my relationship as a primary care doctor supposed to be 
if any, with these retail clinics that my patients sometimes visit. So, you know, this paper that ACP put out was published in Annals about four years ago now. And it has a few points that I think are salient for, for anyone who's practicing medicine and also for patients, which is when is, and the question it's trying to answer is, when is it appropriate for a patient to seek care at a retail health clinic? What is the scope of practice for a retail clinic? And part of that is going to be determined by what kind of person is staffing it. Is it a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant? What should the guidelines be that they follow? And how are they part of this broader idea of a patient-centered medical home? Right. So so as, as someone who, who manages PCMH uh, medical homes for a living, one of the things that we found is that, at least in our closed system, that uh, for our patients that utilize retail direct care models or d- direct care, so we're, we're talking like uh, go to the local pharmacy and you see a nurse practitioner or PA. The problem is, is that the communication between our PCMH teams and these retail um, clinics is actually fairly abysmal. So we don't know what happened. We don't know what medications were started. And so it leads to increased utilization of the PCMH core team, except for those patients that have very low IBI scores. So illness burden index so it's something less than two. If they, if they access a retail, uh, uh, clinic, essentially it's a difference of either sitting at home on your condition and doing nothing about it, or at least seeing somebody and, and knowing you're not having a stroke that helps to alleviate some concerns. But for the more, um, the, the moderate to high complexity patients, so two to threes and threes and higher, those patients tend to inc- to drive up healthcare costs. So we've actually limited the number of visits that our patients can use to access these retail healthcare, um, clinics without a, a, a copayment because of that. Can can I just break in the retail clinics? Just correct me if I'm wrong. These are things that might be called an urgent care or right, a minute right. clinic. Yes, or they might be at yes. a pharmacy or they might be their own standalone building. Yeah, yes, and and there's a lot of heterogeneity in the type of care that that's provided. So some some urgent care centers actually are are quite well staffed and the care provided is very appropriate and is appropriately urgent but for some retail clinics they're being driven to do things like manage hypertension manage hyperlipidemia because that makes the patients come back and so that kind of model really impacts our ability to provide good pcmh um uh, care for our patients so that's the patient-centered medical home so and it, you're, it, you're touching exactly on, uh, on what um, ACP's um, policy paper is right. on this. And it's basically saying that retail health clinics work okay for low-level acute visits, but they can't replace possibly what's going on in terms of chronic disease management. And that's what, that's what these man, the PCMH models are getting compensated for. So it ends up possibly even hurting them to some extent. And that um, then the question is then who has the burden of um, creating that sort of communication line with the primary yeah. care physician? Yeah. And it, it almost harkens back to the clinical reasoning episode that we have in the past. You know, you can make a bad decision, but if you don't follow up with a patient, you think slam dunk, I did the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, uh, my practice is actually open seven days a week. And so we take turns staffing it on the weekends. So our patient base is lucky that they don't have to utilize the minute clinics uh, or the walk-in clinics 
there's different stratification. I think that's important to outline. I mean, there are a couple that do cardiac rule out and things that we would consider truly urgent, right. but the majority of them are not doing that kind of work. But what's happened is it's fragmented my relationships with the patients even more than they are in the current environment. I think it's kind of useful to think about it in terms of any relationship. For the most part, I have a relationship with my patients and they're friends on some level. But with the introduction of the retail health clinics, what happens is whenever they need something simple, they go to the retail clinic. I need a vaccine. I want a medication before I travel, Uh, something along those lines. And they only come to me when there's something really wrong or in crisis mode. Now, what that does is it makes it very difficult to build a longitudinal relationship. You need good times and bad times in primary care. And when you have the opportunity to see them for their physicals, their vaccines, uh, travel visits, what have you, Those are usually very positive interactions. You have time to talk, get to know each other so that when something is wrong, they're going to a mental health issue. um, They're going through a serious medical problem, whatever. You have some rapport. But what I find very challenging is how the growth of these and sort of cherry picking the easy visits and the low acuity as, as you're highlighting, Stuart, is it's making it harder and harder to develop those relationships. Um, and, and the ACP point that I think is really important is it, the onus has to be on the, the retail health clinic to keep us in the loop. I mean, there's so many of them. And without their communication coming to us, the fragmentation just becomes more and more of a problem. And you may have touched on this, but what's the incentive for them to do that? Like, I mean, there's good patient care, so that would be great. And I think we're all on board with that. But for from a financial standpoint or from really other metrics, is there any real incentive for them to to keep primary care doctors in the loop? Absolutely not. In the same way that even hospitals are not required to let us know when our patients go to the ER or the hospital. Right. But it should be. And And that's one of the things. And let me just say, so speaking from the patients go to these clinics because they want to see their primary when they want to see them. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunately they can't get in the same day or even the next day a lot uh-huh. of the time. So that's that's a problem. And and par- I think part of the thing that th- this would stress me out to no end uh, when like my nurse would come in the room. This patient <laughs> called. They want to see you there. You have nothing for two weeks. And I'm like, OK, okay so sorry. Am I going to get so. So your choices are like you give up your lunch, you give up your admin time. It puts more stress on you. But you don't want your patients like having to see one of your colleagues because that's it's it's an easy visit for you to see someone and follow up. It's hard for your colleagues, and um, so I think I think that's part of why they go there. And yeah. it makes you wonder how it can be done in a minute. Yeah. And I try to and, and and as a hospitalist now, I try to call the primary care physicians. And sometimes you're really busy and you forget to or you don't do it, but um, sometimes you call them and they're yeah. too busy to even call you back. So it's. Well- you know, the, and they're, they're actually in the uh, CPT and ENM codes you can now use for physician to physician discussion with a written report. And I, so I do think that this will be incentivized. And the time that you have to spend in order to get 0.7 work RVs is only five minutes. So right. five minutes compiling a report and sending it to the to the uh, primary care physician. I mean, that's that's like that's important. Yeah, that's that would build up. Nine nine four five one for everyone that's listening. 
in the in electronic health record, a nice thing is if it's a primary care physician that's within the CashLack system, I can just send them a message in the record that says like, hey, your patient was admitted. Yeah. We ruled them out for MI. Their stress test was negative. They need to follow up for this these three things. And guess and, what? That CPT code is meant for that. So even within your own healthcare system, you can send them a message within the EMR and that meets the requirements of that specific CPT. So it, it, even within the same healthcare system, they're incentivizing that. I'm just I'm just sort of saying like for minute cl- you know if th- if there's a way yeah. for these us to talk to all these people that's easy and not burdensome on them them and us. Well Matt, I think you're bringing up a really relevant point is there's obviously a huge demand for these. That's why they're all over the place. Yeah. And the alternatives we're giving patients right now are go to the emergency room on the weekends and nights. And I think some other real solutions to it are helping primary care office build an after-hours infrastructure. And and what does that infrastructure look like and how do you make it not burdensome and really uh, something that the doctors want to do and implement in their practices? The f- easiest one is an after-hours code, which we don't even have for a lot of the payers in Metro Atlanta right now, uh, which is a premium payment for taking a call after hours. And this sort of gets us into telemedicine. But there's also uh, an after-hours code for seeing patients on the weekends. And interestingly, one thing we've seen is rarely a patient will complain about having to pay that after-hours visit fee, which is usually 10 or $15, but they won't compare complain about paying their urgent care visit fee because of the name urgent care. It connotates like they're getting a higher level of care um, in terms of acuity, That though that's not the case. It's usually just a walk-in visit. So the question that we have asked policymakers is how can you support us and empower primary care clinics and, and systems at large to implement these with the current supply? And how do we really augment and enhance what we have to reduce the amount of fragmentation, close the access gap, and maybe try to make it a little more closed with the primary care team? And do you think telemedicine is the answer to that? Or I think least- it's probably part of the answer. But you know, the rate limiting step with telemedicine and really retail health clinics in general, uh, in any model beyond the traditional physician office is if you want the care to really be led and delivered by physicians, the number of physicians is the rate limiting step here. Mm-hmm. And that's a societal question that we haven't answered yet. And, and patients voice and what they want and what they'll accept in terms of who is delivering that care is something we don't have an answer to right now. I want to sort of move the conversation along a little bit and um, talk about some of those deep you just mentioned. A lot of it has to do with the physician. So let's talk, we're talking about workforce, so we have to talk about compensation. How much does that have to do with the, the trends that we're seeing right now? Well, even from the crudest perspective, physicians are going to remain a scarce resource and we can expect compensation to remain favorable. Uh, I think most physicians in primary care, hospital medicine, and other internal medicine subspecialties are well compensated. The question is, are we willing to work harder for slightly more compensation, or is it not worth it? Because we're going to be more and more strained every year. And at some point, everyone says, you know what, to make a few thousand more, I don't want to work this much harder. And we don't know 
when we're going to hit that threshold for each generation of physicians. And I think that speaks to the variability in the shortfall. We just don't know how much we're going to be able to tolerate. Now, my vision and my hope would be that payers more broadly recognize how much we can do to augment our existing supply through some enhancements. And Stuart touched on some of those codes, uh, the after-hour codes, um, the communication codes to leverage our team members and have them provide care under our direction. Uh, what we call that too is providing incidental to services. And with the growth of all these physician assistants and nurse practitioners, I mean, these statistics are unbelievable. If you look at the HRSA paper and, and assume that the HRSA statisticians were were having a great time when they did this and, and didn't pay much attention and just threw some ballpark numbers out there, okay? So according to their modeling, we're going to have a deficit by 2025 of about 23,000 primary care physicians. The South is going to be the hardest hit uh, with a deficit of around 14,000. The Northeast is supposed to be okay with a deficit of only 810. But the excess of nurse practitioners and physician assistants is striking. You know, they're saying that by 2025, we're going to have an extra 40,000 nurse practitioners and 20,000 physician assistants. Now I'm giving you rounded numbers here. Yeah. When I, and, oh yeah, go on, go on. I'll, I'll ask my question after you might answer it in your. Yeah, I think those are just staggering figures and they speak to the fact that we have not provided a compensation model for primary care doctors and other physician leaders in different roles, inpatient leaders that are on admitting teams of how to appropriately leverage all these team members, get them involved in care delivery. And there's going to be a political question that's answered in every state, which is, what is the role of a physician assistant? What is the role of a nurse practitioner? And how, if at all, is that different from the physician? And that's a really challenging question, which probably isn't the focus of this podcast, but one that's really going to affect those supply numbers and, um, and also the compensation therein. It's interesting that we say that it's the aging population that's driving the uh, demand, but when you look at the number of geriatricians, there's actually an excess based on based on the 2025 projections. That was that's, unbelievable. I can't imagine. I know. <laughs> and they, they clarify it uh, later in the paper that really this is underutilization, and clearly we're going to saturate that number and we're going to have a shortfall in short order. But because they have to use status quo modeling. Okay. It turns out that way. Yeah, which means but, it also takes away all, all these other novel approaches to medicine. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, oh, well, we'll, what, we'll make What I was going to say, we, I, I can't remember where I heard this exactly. My brother's an attorney, so I was, I've, I've been around attorneys a bunch, and I heard that law, the, law schools train more lawyers than there are jobs, or at least good jobs. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if with that kind of like projection for nurse practitioners and physician assistants, are they going to run into that where it's going to be super competitive to get jobs or are they just not going to go into primary care? Are they not going to go into primary care? Was that all? You just have less people applying. And I think that's what's so interesting. No one knows because we're still figuring out how to incorporate them on our care teams. 
and uh, it's uh, verdicts out. I mean, no one knows. Jury's out. It certainly feels like there's plenty of work to go around. So, like the more, the merrier. Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a lot of opinions on on every side of this. And every system and every state is is approaching it differently. There's no uniformity right now. And that's a real challenge as we're trying to streamline care delivery. I know that this has been addressed in other podcasts, but it's hard to talk about compensation without talking about gender pay gap issues and also racial disparities in payment as well, because all of those can influence what specialties people choose and going into medicine unto itself as well. So I won't delve into it, but I think it's important for us to sort of keep that in mind. Yeah, well, I think it's very important. And, you know, the the real question is, if you want to increase the supply of primary care physicians in the short term, number one way to do that is to increase the compensation for being a primary care doctor. And in some of these markets where we have an excess of certain medical subspecialties, people may incorporate more primary care into their practices. Uh for example, certain subspecialists see their patients quite frequently, and maybe if they were compensated in a way that was appropriate for them to deliver primary care, they'd be more likely to do that. Um, you know, the number I always say is a good PCP should be making between three hundred and three fifty a year, and that's pretty far off the mark for where we are right now. Well, how about a mediocre PCP? Just <laughs> <laughs> and. And, you know, people's (laughs) eyes pop when I say that, but I think it really speaks to the value of the broader system. And, uh, you know, if you think about it right now, an average hospitalist who's working, you know, half the year is is what the model is in most private hospitalist settings is pretty much making that comp um, if you if you work the entire year. Um, And and that's where that, that number comes from. One of the things you sent us out preparing for this show, the the hospitalist segment was growing faster than even the subspecialist, and I think and like almost three times as much as the primary yeah. care. One of the one of those slides you had sent out, um, which and I think that's why it's because the compensation versus how much time and people want families and um, yeah, it was certainly a hard decision for me to transition from being in primary care to to working hospital medicine. But for my family at this point, I thought that was the best, the best way to be able to do all the things I'm doing right now. It's a very tough argument to persuade somebody that this makes economic sense. I mean, it, it, the fact is at this point in time, probably doesn't. Uh, and we need to make a pair model where it, it's favorable for you to make that decision. Absolutely. And then the other thing we haven't talked about is student loan debt, that the average medical student is at least $200,000 in debt, if not more, and that's going to grow over time. Mm-hmm. So that has a lot to do with what we're discussing as well. Maybe we could move on from the compensation piece and talk about, are these problems that are only specific to the United States or are these global issues, physician workforce issues? Yeah, I think one of the systems we hear a lot about is the National Health Service um, in England and, and some of the challenges they faced. And, and recently in the United States, and maybe we can talk outside of internal medicine, but there's quite a bit of press about what emergency medicine physicians and anesthesiologists are doing um, 
to deal with these issues of workforce compensation, finding the right work-life balance, not burning out. And the question is, and I don't have the answer, is how is the internal medicine community going to find some kind of common ground um, in order to advocate for ourselves and hopefully find a more sustainable solution that helps us close the access gap, make our compensation a little bit more sustainable and favorable. And what you see a lot of places happening are variants of physician unions or bartering groups. I know that at our local hospital, for example, the emergency room is not staffed by employed ER physicians. There's a large ER staffing company that provides emergency room physicians on lease, long-term permanent leases to the hospital. And I think that's given them significantly more control over the value of their time. And and that's what I think Matt was getting at is, you know, it's the value of your time. And we can't blame anyone for, for making a decision, a medical student or a resident that chooses whatever field that they go into, if they feel like it's a good value of their time. I mean, who are we to say that? Uh, and I'm sure some of you are familiar, and, and Matt, I'd be curious if you know much about, there's some hospitalist unions on the West Coast. I'm not sure how they're doing, but uh, I'll summarize by saying, you know, there's different kind of trade associations that are out there for doctors. And some of those are staffing companies, some of those are unions, and then the rest of us are in traditional employment models and sort of seeing how things go and letting the market speak to us and responding. I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about them, actually. I, I mean, I work for a large academic cash lack. It's gigantic. It's a, sure. uh-huh. <laughs> it's an academic powerhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll um, refer everybody maybe to a New York Times article. I think it's from early 2016, and it's uh, about a group in Oregon. And the the physician who it's centered around is is Dr. Alexander, um, Rajiv Alexander. So people can look that up. He's at Peace Health. I don't know him personally. No endorsement. <laughs> well, Fatima, I think we have maybe just a couple minutes left. So sure. maybe as part of our wrap up here, maybe you and Deep could tell tell the audience like what what you're doing and maybe what they can do or where how they can get involved to s- start working on these problems. I, I don't think these are going to be fixed uh, in weeks or months. It's going to be years to to fix all this stuff of hard work. But can you kind of yeah. bring us home here? Absolutely. So I think the main ways to get involved in things is to first educate yourself, read some of the papers that we talked about, look to understand what national trends are. But I really see change in this at a grassroots level uh, to some extent in terms of um, knowing how your organization works and knowing the people to talk to to get involved in the leadership's point of view and and, 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 uh, speaking within your organizations of what your issues are in terms of physician workforce issues and how they can make the work environment better to to retain you specifically. And I think if enough people do that, we can start to see some trends for the better. Um, there's one thing that we didn't talk about that I don't know if I should touch on right now or not is 
uh, compensation from the Medicare perspective and seeing how much that might Im- impact things. So I'm hearing that in a few years, and there's a big patients before paperwork initiative that um, CMS has adopted that came from ACP, among other organizations, and that maybe coding itself is burdensome and patients and the documentation is burdensome. So maybe a level three and a level five will end up being compensated the same. So as a primary care provider, you need to know what that means and know that that's a trend that might exist. So I would just make, make staying educated be a, like a really big priority. Deep, any, any final, final words or final thoughts about this? What she said. <laughs> well, no, I, I think I would just say that the first question every doctor has to ask is, you know, what kind of system would be the best for my patients? And once you have a clear vision of that, and I think it takes a few years, and I myself am still learning and, and trying to figure out what exactly would be the best environment for my patients to receive care year-round, uh, recognizing that I'm a small part of a, a big healthcare environment. But once you have a clear vision of that, and in my case, uh, as a primary care clinic, it's really about advocating for policies that will help me close that access gap. And talking to other people in the community, when you have the opportunity to talk to your leadership or the insurance companies that you work with about showing them the clear value of, of what your services provide. And then at some point, getting your patients involved with that effort too is, is I think what the dream is because patients know what's good for them in a lot of ways. And I don't think we give them enough credit um, about being able to tell what kind of care they need when they need it. And that's one thing I've really come to realize over the past year or two is, you know, I may not like that they went to XYZ place to receive this care, but oftentimes they have a valid reason for it. And and we need to hear them and learn from that and see how we address it as a, as a doctor's office. Stuart, are you with us? Did you have any closing words? Oh no, I have no closing words. I am definitely with you though. (laughs) <laughs> I find it very hard to believe, but uh, I guess, Paul, <laughs> Paul, do you believe him or do you have any closing words? No, I, no, I don't believe him. Uh, and also no, no closing words. I, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, I, the long and the short of it is it's, it's terribly complicated. You know, I, I think going back to a way earlier point, uh, and actually one that Fatima just, just touched on is the administrative burden. I, you know, I think cannot be overstated. I think patients like being seen by doctors, and I think doctors like seeing patients. And the work that you have to do to be able to see a patient seems to be becoming more and more. So the actual time in the patient room is almost the afterthought, and the the job is sort of the aftercare around it. So I I think compensation is important. I actually, I have a hard time reconciling the use of physician extenders, because I I think Deep made this great point that the well visits are what allow you to actually um, develop the rapport so that you can take care of the sick visits. So to actually have those well visits or use those extenders in a way that takes away a chance to get to know the patients, which is the joy of the job, I'm not sure that's quite the answer either. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying I don't have any answers, but I'm glad that smart people are thinking about it. I think it's telling too that we threw we threw around some codes, and the fact that we have to know those codes just to get compensated is is just ungodly. I mean, some of this should it should be just automatic. Mm-hmm. Maybe we shouldn't be the ones who are doing the coding. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. You get a scribe when you graduate medical school. That would be like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, not happening. All right, guys. 
All right. Thank you so much, Fatima and Deep, for joining us and schooling us on these topics. Yeah. Uh, giving Stuart a chance to talk about policy. Always, always a joy to watch watch that happen. So we'll we'll have to do another one of these in the in the near future as we as we build up more topics here. Wonderful. Sounds great, guys. Take care. Thank you so much for the honor of joining you guys. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Did not like that one. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes or contact us or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producer for this episode, Fatima Sayed and Beth Garb Garbatelli to our and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli once again on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been and have always been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. <laughs> and I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Did you guys hear about that zombie deer disease? <laughs> no. <laughs> This better not be a joke because I'm so excited to hear what you're going to say next. No, no, I'm I'm actually dead serious. It's a very deadly disease. What is it? I don't know. It's it's some kind of deadly disease that uh, spread to 24 states, and it's a prion disease. But it, it was supposed to be kind of a joke because it's a deadly disease. <laughs> so that that was it. I, I, I you know I I didn't really game that one that well. <laughs> so. I, where is there a punchline still coming or should I just no no th- there, there's no punchline <laughs> this is actually I'm dead serious this is a deadly disease <laughs>